Hello, my name is Artemis Kotiadu, and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, Dr. Megan Black discusses her latest book, The Global Interior, in which it traces the history of the US Interior Department. She explains how it often exploited its image as a neutral scientific organization in order to satisfy America's demands for raw materials. I begin by asking her about the department's origins. The U.S. Interior Department was founded on March 3, 1849, as a direct response and a federal response to the problem of bringing in territory, and specifically territory that had been expropriated as part of the U.S. war with Mexico. And, um, and in and through that process, the federal government was poised to um, buckle under the weight of enlarged responsibility, specifically with regard to the increased population, um, indigenous peoples to be specific, and, um, and resources and land. Hence, a group of legislators came together and decided that it was time to create in the federal government the first official apparatus for what they insisted were domestic affairs. And previously, the domestic had fallen on states to manage, with a few exceptions. But this rewiring of American governance in the mid-19th century created a an institutional home for Indian Affairs, which had previously been under the War Department, and the General Land Office, which had previously been under the Treasury Department, as well as the Patent Office and the Pensions Office related to compensating war veterans from the Mexican-American War. These were explicitly brought together because they had to do with expansion. So, for example, a proliferation of land claims in California that would follow, especially in the wake of the discovery of gold in Sutter's Mill, would be um, so uh, exacting or intensive that um, it, it needed to sort of be brought together and streamlined. This is where the Interior Department came from, and one of my contributions to our understanding of this department is to take seriously this expansionist origin and to understand that calling this expanse the interior was doing important political work to bring interior that which had been exterior and foreign in the months before. Do you think the fact that they called it interior, even though it was going to deal with matters that were not really interior yet, would it be fair to say that it was fundamentally imperialist? A short answer to that is absolutely yes, and that the interior department be came the colonial office of the United States. And yet, you know, while some historians would readily concede that point as part of a new move in the historiography, at least in the last 10 years, others have had a harder time seeing certain of the land management components of the department's jurisdiction as equally embedded in that kind of colonial practice. But um, part of what they were trying to say was different about this approach was that it was consciously not led by military power. So the Interior Department was a civilian antidote to military force and frequently followed in the wake of the U.S. military um, to show the government's sort of benevolent will towards its um, new subjects, and that includes Native American 
nations, but would eventually also include populations in overseas territories as well, um, including in Puerto Rico, in the Philippines, and beyond. They dealt with uh, a number of er policy areas. So who was setting the agenda of the interior? Well, from its origins, it in many ways was an arm of congressional will. And there's a reason that people who have written about this period, uh, the late 19th century, have emphasized things like the Dawes Severalty Act, for example, General Allotment Act in 1887, that allowed Congress to sort of disaggregate tribal holdings and, um, and in the process merge many of those and expropriate those as part of a public domain. So the department in its early iteration was in many ways a, a loose network of clerks who were not salaried like we would think of government officials. And in that sense, were not so much setting the agenda, but were a, a sort of manifestation of a broader federal will that um, was congressional, but um, but is also attached to figures like, you know, Ulysses S. Grant's peace policy toward indigenous people. So there's still like an, an, a relationship between executive and um, legislative power in that, as well as, of course, Supreme Court rulings, which helped to define the scope and content of indigenous sovereignty, mm -hmm. beginning with the infamous Marshall Trilogy, trilogy around the 1830s, which effectively uh, concluded indigenous nations were domestic dependent nations, which is a mercurial legal status, to say the least, one that continues to perplex and also to animate other kinds of gray zones of U.S. sovereignty, including in the plenary cases or the insular cases around U.S. formal imperialism. Mm -hmm. However, my story, as you know, ends up tracking more with what happens in the 20th century. And in those um, modern kind of iterations of the department's various projects, I do see secretaries of the interior as having a larger remit to define the um, the different agendas that are a part of the department's expansionism. And part of this has to do with the general growing of executive power in U.S. history. Part of it has to do, again, with a transformation in bureaucracy whereby these officials are salaried and professionalized. But... Um, but it also is perhaps a bit particular to the Interior Department in that over that important period of, you know, the New Deal and forward in U.S. history, Interior Secretaries were long-serving cabinet members rather than kind of a rotating door that moved them quickly in and out of their authority. So Harold Dickies, who would serve under FDR, would be there the entirety of that long administration um, and would, in fact, be in power longer than FDR himself. Mm -hmm. So through um, Truman's ascent to power in 1945. And um, and subsequently then in the 1960s under Kennedy and Johnson, Stuart Udall would also have a very long tenure of nine years. So um, in that sense, a kind of continuity that might have been evasive in other sorts of departments of, um, of executive power was possible. I am also interested in though that even as different kinds of actors with very different approaches to, um, for example, um, the the priority in, in terms of withdrawing land from the ability to use it in a kind of conservationist sense versus then a privatization impulse that wants to allow for a variety of private interests to make use of land, even as 
different kinds of actors stepped into that role and had different sets of opinions, there was a surprising consistency of belief in the idea that interior nevertheless had a role to play in other kinds of expansionism. And part of that, which I try to track with in my history, is the fact that this kind of knowledge and skill set that got created in and through the process of continental expansion was one that was readily available for use across an array of new zones. And these sometimes include territory as we properly understand it, like formal territories, foreign nations, um, and the like, but it could also include the continental shelf and, and outer space and um, indigenous lands, these kinds of trickier ways of conceiving of um, bounded space. So I'm interested both in the kind of intentionality of certain actors who are trying to pull levers toward this um, this outward kind of motion, but I'm equally interested in the unassuming and sort of less um, intentional actions of people who were specialists in a certain kind of technical knowledge and saw a certain amount of um, opportunity and maintained a certain amount of excitement for transferring those skills into like, you know, what we might, we might think of as like field adjacent kinds of projects. And that these are, in my mind, um, activities that have been a little too easy to overlook by virtue of, you know, the, the sort of actors that are involved. They don't really appear in the usual documents related to foreign relations, though once you start looking for them, of course, they're everywhere. Um, um, and that, I think, is the takeaway that I would like for people to have, that part of this institutional disposition towards other kinds of global reach stems from um, a, a, a vision that conforms to um, a positive American power in the world while still wanting resources from that world, and also from just the, the sort of technical processes that themselves, whether from surveying to parceling to other aspects of land management, are the building blocks or the kind of um, the basic repertoire of bringing in territory. Given the centrality of expansionism to the interior's purpose, what impact did the two world wars have on its agenda now that the U.S. was starting to abandon non-interventionism? The Interior Department took on a more active role in affirming and assuring the United States mineral stronghold in response, especially to the First World War. Um, and this would be institutionalized more so by the Second World War. And I do sort of um, brush fairly quickly past the First World War, but there were many lessons that economists and geologists alike were taking from it, which had to do with the idea that economic nationalism or this kind of um, hardening of national borders around resources and an unwillingness to trade that had characterized the early decades of the 20th century was itself a catalyst for military aggression. And many geologists would increasingly adopt a kind of internationalist faith that um, ensuring trade across borders helped to prevent other kinds of political disaster. Now, this was hardly uniform within the department, which itself 
had a sort of constituency in the American West that would have called for protectionism. And certainly, um, you know, U.S. presidents like Herbert Hoover, who himself was a mining engineer, um, who had been all over the globe, but would be renowned for his part in tariff and um, protectionism, would be orienting the United States toward bolstering its industry and, and its economy through a kind of turn away from global markets. However, this is less a, a common faith in the 1930s and after, and certainly as the uh, U.S. officials were aware of the growing likelihood that the United States could be drawn into the Second World War, they assembled a kind of um, machinery of governance that could allow the United States to venture into zones and intensify resource extraction. Now, what zones did that entail? Firstly, it entailed U.S. territories like the Philippines um, and Alaska at the time, but to an extent also Puerto Rico. Um, and then it also coincided with an interest in Latin America as an arena. So even though the good neighbor policy had been put in place since the 1930s and explicitly aimed to depart from former kinds of exploitation led by the United States and other outsiders, the sort of growing threat of war allowed for a new consensus among geologists in the United States, but also in the sort of broader hemispheric perspective that an exchange of science and knowledge could facilitate the unearthing of minerals needed to protect the arsenal of democracy. So I look in one chapter at the sort of origins of this cooperative strategic mineral program in Latin America in 1941 that carried through the end of the war effort and actually became a basis for the eventual international development programs of the post-war era. These were um, tricky in two ways. I mean, the, the territories posed a special problem because at the same time that the world is debating imperialism and avowing a sort of exaltation of self-determination, the United States was actively seeking to exploit its own territories for raw materials in a way, in an unprecedented fashion. And you, interior officials like U.S. officials um, were aware that there was a growing disenchantment with this kind of activity. So the kind of imperialist boogeyman of Cecil Rhodes and um, King Leopold of Belgium needed to be avoided. And this is a part of the discourse, whether it's Interior's Division of Territory and Island Possessions Director, Ernest Gruning, who would um, be consciously trying to frame American empire in a benevolent light in the 1930s and 40s. Or whether it was the director of the Bureau of Mines, James Boyd, who would, you know, say, we have to acknowledge our dependence or our historic dependence on Rhodes's empire. But, you know, there's like a desire to say we have to move in different directions from this. And other other kinds of examples could be pointed to. With Latin America, of course, there was an equal need to avow self-determination and perhaps a greater need to do so. Um, hence, the sort of framework provided 
for interior geologists' involvements in these zones um, in places like Bolivia and Colombia and Mexico and Brazil um, and elsewhere was to insist on the fact that cooperation was the organizing principle. So cooperative and cooperation um, are words that are used with incredible consistency in the documents associated with these activities. And I'll add, I do believe that they were cooperative, but cooperative covers over a manner of things. Um, some of the cooperation entailed American mining firms that were already in Latin America providing information to U.S. officials. Some of the cooperation was, of course, mediated by the governments themselves who were happy to sort of have this expertise on the basis that it wouldn't also entail like an extension of U.S. sovereignty in their regions. Um, but this information was also an important basis or kind of foothold in these territories that shored up a variety of um, unearthing projects on a scale that had never been um, in place in um, a variety of minerals industries. I use one example of the production of mica in Brazil. Brazil, a region known more for manganese and other elements crucial to the production of steel, was also a key source of mica, a mineral used in electronics and things that were very vital to the war effort. Um, but the production of this mineral spiked in a very obvious and exponential curve on a graph in the war years of like 1942 to 1945, followed by a subsequent bust, of course. But part of what happened in that bus cycle was that U.S. geologists and officials um, debating this acknowledged, okay, that a lot of these resources were depleted, but also said it's a pity that these kinds of programs can't be continued in the context of peace. And they quickly said, but of course they can be continued in the context of peace. Peaceful prosperity relies on economic development. And of course, here they slip very easily into a logic about capitalist growth that will be central to the Point Four program and later once it's reorganized as USAID or the US Agency for International Development um, and the associated theories of modernization that we know to have animated important parts of America's Cold War agenda in the global south. Was there any significant uh, objection to the interior's activities with the rise of anti-imperialist uh, movements? When I try to think about the resistance component um, in the international development context, it has been a particularly uh, elusive one from the archive of Interior's own activities, but there are also moments where you can see pushback, of course. So one example that comes to mind is that U.S. officials overseeing the extraction of manganese in Cuba, again, manganese being a mineral crucial to the production of steel, were complaining that the miners were striking and wanting to strike because of the um, high incidence of manganese poisoning, which creates a kind of neurological disorder with very negative effects. And the point for sort of interior officials involved in this dialogue are saying, oh, no, we've got um, another John L. Lewis out here trying to get in the way of vital strategic mineral pursuits and and dredge up, you know, this artificial animosity towards the U.S. development agenda. 
Now, this is something I want to take seriously as a point of resistance, not just on the basis of public health crises emanating from mining, but from an awareness that this arrangement um, is one that consistently benefited people further away than those in the like local sites of extraction. This is a point that U.S. officials and interior officials specifically would avow themselves in conversation about the fact that these strategic mineral programs in developing nations were not yielding long-term benefits for those nations, which was a requirement mandated by the Technical Cooperation Administration under the State Department for any kind of international agreement um, carried out under that mandate. However, acknowledging the limitations of these programs, especially with respect to the fact that it was so capital intensive, it required outside investors, which meant that the profits in turn, rather than staying within the nations where the projects were happening, were often siphoned outward to sort of distant coffers. They insisted that this was vital to America's strategic mineral interests and therefore should be continued. In that sense, a explicit, a rather explicit, um, avowal of the insufficiency of cooperative mineral approaches or these scientific and technical, um, mineral programs, um, is offered. And yet the unilateral interests belying that emerge in the foreground. Of course, this conversation stays among a small group of people and, on the surface and for the international community, the claim that the United States and interior officials within it was working to help develop global resources for the benefit of all. And in the book, I take care to think about the ways that um, ideas about nature became an important ideological foundation from which to make arguments about the benevolence of American power um, but also to help just disguise its projection overall. So if resources are global and impervious to national borders, they therefore can more reasonably be extracted by various operators as long as it's somehow vaguely helping a, a global community. And that kind of universalizing impulse was present particularly in the post-1945 moment after the founding of the United Nations, when the exigency of respecting national sovereignty was at its highest. Do you think that the interior saw themselves as doing what you call settler colonialism? Or did they just think that we're geologists or scientists going on to just help other nations? I definitely think they viewed themselves as neutral scientists. And that is a project I am deeply interested in, or that kind of um, self-image and um, and the work of naturalizing certain kinds of activities that is facilitated by the claim that something is merely technical and therefore cannot be political. I should also say that I... It, it's important and challenging in a book that covers both parts of the 19th century and parts of the, you know, 20th century before and after 1945 to deal with terminology. And I tried to take care to locate settler colonialism as a 
um, a 19th century and before form and one that, um, that has continuities within formal imperialism in overseas territory and that has continuities with a form of public private collusion on a global scale for extractive purposes. In other words, I did not try to get into all of the fights and the important fights about what is the proper terminology. For me, of course, empire is a very meaningful framework, but the consciously non-militarized form that interiors activities took on posed a kind of definitional problem. But what I hope to kind of single out um, as a, a shared investment across these different but interrelated forms of expansionism was the fact that um, the government's involvement in promoting capitalism through different kinds of incorporation was and remains a consistent mechanism that unfolds over time and that does so in a way that shores up the kinds of asymmetries that we talk about with imperialism. In other words, the distribution of the benefits and the tolls of something like extraction are highly uneven. And this is something that my work tries to make sense of while also acknowledging important differences over time as well. They saw themselves as neutral scientists most of the time. Do you think that historians also saw them as neutral scientists as a result? And for this reason, mm -hmm. uh, it's not until now that we're starting to look at something like the Department of the Interior as something that did much more and much more to do with foreign affairs than ever before. I think so. I think that historians have been pretty willing to accept the actors' categories to make sense of their own activities. And of course, there is an important um, virtue in that that I want to take seriously. And I, again, think that the question of intent is one that helps me to get out of this like overly accusatory mode of assuming that everything is really just a base material interest or base kind of expansionist project that's cloaked under the benevolent guise of um, resource knowledge. I think it's a much rarer case when people are really consciously using the natural resource expert banner as a shield. There are cases, however, that are important to acknowledge where that is precisely the case. So maybe we can talk about that rather exceptional case first. One example involves Stuart Udall, who not only would disavow his political role in Saudi Arabia by virtue of his being a natural resource expert, but also an exchange that he had, funnily enough, with Nikita Khrushchev that um, fatefully would entail Udall becoming a vessel of the key intelligence that would lead to the breaking of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This began when Udall in 1962 traveled to uh, the Soviet Union to see hydroelectric dams as part of a kind of, again, easy exchange between Cold War foes that was not so unlike the kitchen debate in the way that a lot more ideological ground was covered in the debate than just dam building. And as they had a private meeting at Khrushchev's um, compound, they um, discussed many things, but also Khrushchev signaled to Udall that the Soviet Union had the capability to swat the United States in the ass 
quoting him directly. And this, in turn, not so subtly signaled that he had been working with Castro to um, to bring that threat much closer to U.S. soil. At the end of this conversation, Khrushchev sig- signals to Udall that this should be kept secret and that he should tell the press that they were talking about hydroelectric dams. Here we have, you know, a key political operative, a pretty savvy person who is aware of the way that natural resources and nature can serve as a guise. Now, I don't think that most or, you know, like really, um, you know, the people who are boots on the ground, I don't think that most interior technicians shared in this set of assumptions about the way that their work could function as an easy guise for um, activities that could be interpreted as manipulating um, foreign peoples or exploiting foreign peoples. Nevertheless, then on this side, what I'm interested in is the way that people could tell stories about their own agenda that could accord with a benevolent self-image. In other words, and I don't think officials woke up in the morning with this like plan for how they could exploit people. And instead, what I want to make sense of is how they could have such an important role in furthering American power and the reach of multinational firms into foreign nations and to not be able to recognize the way that that was unilateral and was self-serving and could and did lead to negative effects in terms of um, social, economic, and environmental costs in these different nations. I do suspect that some knew and understood this, and the archive allows for certain moments of introspection. There's one that remains a little evasive to me that I'm interested in, which is in 1981, an interior geologist named Joe Morgan, who had been working in USAID with a new version of this kind of scientific and technical assistance organized around the satellite Landsat, which could view Earth's resources from outer space, that although they had been working consciously to frame this technology as a global and environmental good, one that would help alleviate poverty in the third world, he said, you know, we have to quit kidding ourselves about the benefits to the poor based on having better information about their resources. And this quote stands to me as a, you know, um, as an invitation to think about the the documented failures of international development, but it could just as easily be Joe Morgan maintaining a fairly condescending set of attitudes about the scientists and, and collaborators in those zones. So I allow there to be like the room for this to be interpreted in that light. Another interpretation is that he's seeing a pattern in which the extraction of minerals through international development, whether aided by satellites or other kinds of um, interventions, was not bringing about long-term improvement. And in that, I hear the echo of an earlier set of comments by interior experts in the field that this does not yield long-term benefit by virtue of its closeness to private industries that in turn help fund these capital-intensive projects and the other kinds of binds that I haven't quite discussed 
involving like manipulating markets by prioritizing the extraction of certain minerals, um, which created a set of problems in international development by, um, by putting all of one's eggs in one basket, like manganese production, for example, if after the course of U.S. intervention into several nations to get the same kind of resource, the world market becomes glutted with that resource, then those resources are now devalued and are hardly able to be the centerpiece of economic development that they were billed as at the beginning of those technical assistance agreements. What is the interior doing now? Today, the Interior Department has a wide mandate, as it did, but I do think it has retreated from these more obviously global outposts. Part of that story has to do with the major transformations in the international development apparatus of the United States and a kind of push towards privatization and microfinance as the set of solutions. Um, but I think it is also important to note that while the Interior Department continues to manage, as it always or as it long has, national parks, public lands, indigenous affairs, um, and um, wildlife and um, and fishing concerns. It oversees the Marshall Islands, and it oversees the management of the continental shelf. So um, the Interior Department's Minerals Management Service was um one of the institutions that seriously failed the American public and more than the American public, a transnational community by allowing for the um, operation of the deep water horizon oil facilities um, in the Gulf of Mexico. So these kinds of zones beyond or seemingly beyond U.S. borders continue to be a part of its mandate, as does, I should say, Afghanistan. So in the wake of the U.S. war on terror, interior geologists arrived in Afghanistan to conduct mineral surveys um, for a new set of priorities, including lithium, which is an, um, a sort of linchpin of the green technologies boom, and that they in some ways continue activities that have been a part of their remit for a very long time. This was LSE's Dr. Megan Black, and this was Our Histories. Thank you for listening.